Hello and welcome to the Shaped Ideas Podcast. My name is Sam. This is episode 8. And today we're going to be talking about three articles. I've got it nicely laid out. Um, a little more a little more organized. A little less uh, talking about stuff that I've done or other little, um, little things. I've got three nice articles that we're going we're gonna to run through today. And uh, the first one is going to be a local story uh, regarding Minnesota. It's from the uh, Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal, and it's about uh, craft brewers and uh, the loans that they've incurred, um, the loans that they had to take out in order to actually start the brewer, the brewery. Um, we're going to talk about that and the possible um, long-term damage that this that this virus is going to to do to them. We're also going to talk about the surveillance state and uh, the U.S. government and what the repercussions could be of this virus regarding the government uh, surveilling us more and more. Uh, And then we also have a a Wall Street Journal article about, about the flu. And it's called Why the Flu Doesn't Tank the Economy. And it's kind of just a an article about the, it's just like a by the numbers COVID versus seasonal flu. And showing us uh, like the big differences on why our seasonal flu doesn't double the country over and, and cause an epidemic as it were, even though. Um, at the beginning of this COVID SARS-2 issue, uh, issue, get some hiccups. At the beginning of all this uh, pandemic stuff, the flu did have worse numbers, but they do not anymore. <laughs> so uh, we will talk about that. And without further ado, let's just jump into it. All right. So the Minnesota Business Journal uh, posted an article, let's see, a couple days ago, and it's called Next on Tap for Minnesota's Craft Brewers, Barrels and Barrels of Troubled Loans. A year ago, Udapil's Brewing Company, which is, I'm kind of bummed, I think the reason I picked this article is actually just because of Udapil's, because it is one of my favorite, favorite breweries. It's probably in the top three, actually, if I think about it. It would be, it would definitely be Udapil's. They'd probably be second. So it would go Surly Brewing in Minneapolis. And then it would go Udapil's. Um, they're out of, I believe, I think they're Minneapolis as well, like Northeast Minneapolis. And then my third favorite is Dual Citizen. And they're off of University Avenue in uh, St. Paul. I think those are probably around on my top three. But anyway, so a year ago, Udapil's Brewing Company was ready to ramp up its packaging and distribution business. It put in an order for five new fermenters from Germany that would add significantly to its production capacity. Obviously, this is unfortunate timing for that, said brewery president Dan Justison. In the weeks since Minnesota shut down bars, restaurants, and taprooms, Udapil's has seen revenue plummet. Justison estimated Udapil's is making 20% of what is actually, or what is usually does, what it usually, what the brewery usually does in a month. Wow. I am just 
one of these days I'll get better at reading these damn articles, I swear. All but a couple full-time staff and the owners are furloughed or laid off. New distribution channels the team anticipated have stalled. He hopes that by the time the new fermenters can produce beer in July, they'll have somewhere to sell it. Oh, God, that's a tough way to think about it. But, I mean, it's optimistic, and I hope that's how it works. I hope that in July this is over. I hope the, um, and we'll talk about this in the Surveillance State article, um, but they say it might be up to 18 months before they actually find a vaccine to get this. I'm like, oh my God, we are going to see mass like mass hysteria if we have to continue to be like this for 18 months and honestly the big thing about that is like if we do stay like that for 18 months we're probably just going to stay that way honestly but anyway um back to the article over the past decade local breweries emerged as a fast-growing cornerstone on virtually every main street in America, helping communities large and small experience their own economic rebound. However, it appears the nation's bar tab is now coming due as fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic intensifies to historic proportions. And I kind of had a feeling this would happen. Um, they already, a couple weeks ago, they had already talked about how a lot of companies don't have um, like a petty enough I shouldn't say petty cash, but um, they don't have enough of a reserve to be able to last very long without constant inflow of of money, of profit and revenue. And so this doesn't surprise me that um, a lot of breweries in Minnesota, I was kind of saying this to people a couple weeks ago when this was first starting, um, a lot of breweries i think we have like 168 or something we have a crazy amount of breweries in minnesota and honestly i think after this is all said and done i'm willing to bet probably 20 to 30 percent of those breweries will not be open anymore after that uh, back to the article a business journal analysis of small business administration lending over the past decade identified 3100 loans totaling 1.57 billion dollars to u.s breweries approximately half of the half of those loans were originated during the sba's most recent three fiscal years as taprooms stainless steel brewing tanks and homegrown ipas ipas became local symbols of economic vitality often in once dilapidated and abandoned industrial spaces dotting down dotting downtown and commercial districts and yeah that's another thing like a lot of these breweries are picking up places that no one wants and that's like really good for the economy it's like and it's really nice for the curb appeal of a lot of cities when you drive through and instead of just seeing tons of really dingy warehouses you see a lot of breweries and it just it picks up a lot of and it's great for the local economy brings jobs like very hyper localized and so those are some big benefits from having all these breweries here it's going to be a bummer when a lot of them start leaving. Um, let's see. According to the data, 174 loans worth $78.8 million have been approved for Minnesota brewers since 2010. Nearly two-thirds of that, $47.8 billion, was approved in the last three fiscal years. Wow, over half. Well, well over half. 
the that momentum had been drained with the os onset of social distancing. God, I hate that term. It's so Orwellian. It just like it's such a social condition. Social conditioning is what it sounds like to me. Like from the book 1984. It's just weird. Uh, let me read that. That momentum has been drained with the onset of social distancing and shelter-in-place orders due to the coronavirus, with hundreds of craft brewers predicting year-over-year -year sales declines of 60% on average in the weeks ahead. A recent Brewers Association survey of 900 brewers found that 20% have stopped production, while 61% have laid off workers. Wow, that's really high. Few are encouraged by the near-term outlook. Minneapolis-based Fair State, Fair State Brewing Cooperative CEO Evan Sally said the impact on the industry in the state could be devastating. Yeah, it definitely could be devastating. I think we're among the better positioned, you know, referring to his brewery, Fair State Brewing. Uh, I think we're, I think we're among the better positioned brewers, breweries in the state because we have a solid presence in retail, which are still allowed to be open. And we have, we can do to go sales, Sally said, but those don't even come close to making up for those other components. Revenues from to go sales simply don't match what we'd see in a tap room. It's not even close. Oh yeah. I mean, and they talk a little bit about, um, about selling bars, about like bringing cakes to bars. Yeah. I think, that's a huge source of revenue for a lot of breweries, especially ones that are just starting. If they can get a handful of cakes in in local bars, it's huge because not only are they selling beer, but they're also getting it out to more people. Because a new brewery, not a lot of people are gonna go to a brewery unless you're a real like unless you're a real beer snob, as like I can't think of a better way to say it, but Unless you're a beer snob, you're not really going to be going to a lot of new, new breweries that just opened. But um, I think I might cut that in the article. Let's see. A lot, a lot of it more is um, just talking more and more about the financial burden that these uh, that these breweries are going are going to incur. Um, it's really quite crazy. This art, the, the main reason I wanted to talk about this article was just because it's crazy how much money these breweries have to put in in order to see a return. Like, let's see, this just this quick little tidbit. Udapils had a $866,000 loan in fiscal year 2016 to help build their Minneapolis brewery and tap room. Fair State, having secured a 12-year, $1.8 million loan from Live Oak Banking Company for fiscal year 2019, was one of roughly 416 borrowers nationally that year to tap into the SBA's uh, Small Business Association's 7A and 504 loan programs for $220 million in loan originations. Holy crap. Yeah, so a lot of these, a lot of these companies or these breweries are attaining massive loans in order to in order to uh, buy all the equipment that they need 
and I think a lot of these newer breweries that are that have only been operating for say three years, between one and three years, I think all those breweries are going to be gone. I don't think they'll be around anymore because just like this showed, I mean, and that's obviously an extreme state or an extreme um, case with the 1.8 million, but at the same time, it's really not because a lot of these brewers, a lot of these breweries have crazy amounts of debt that they have to incur. I think, because um, I was interested, and I, I mean, I still am, but um, interested in opening my own brewery. And I think the, just the startup cost to actually start producing beer is like a million dollars worth of investment just to get everything situated between getting finding the real estate that you want, whether you buy it or you lease it, um, getting or uh, refurnishing the inside of the brewery, uh, having it want, having it look the way you want. If you've got something that's a little more run down, I mean, you're dealing with all sorts of renovations with piping and, and septic and, and water and plumbing, I guess I should say. That's the big one. So figuring all that out, and then you got to buy all the fermenters, all the equipment, the kegs, um, like refrigerators, uh, hosing, and I mean, if you want to do distribution, you're looking at a lot of, you can either do it in-house or you can have a third party do it, but it's, it is, in the long run, it's cheaper to just have your own canning operation, and I think that's what a lot of places do. So, I mean, that's a lot of money that you're looking at right there. And then you got to look at distribution, whether you can self-distribute or um, do it through a company. And then you obviously got to pay them fees for that. So, I mean, it can rack up really fast before you even know it. So, it's it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> that's, that is for sure. And it's quite sad to see all these companies, all these breweries... Um, knowing that they probably won't last 2020 a lot of them will probably close down um let's just jump back right uh, i'm just gonna skip down to the last little bit in the last little bit of this article uh the sba's relief programs sba's relief programs which justison has applied for he's the and again he's the ceo of uh, Udapil's brewing company out of Northeast Minneapolis in Minnesota could help offset the losses from the closed tap room, which he said provides enough cash flow to keep bills like bank loans up to date. He spends his days talking to the landlord and to bankers and vendors looking for ways to keep his costs down. He shut down as many contract services as he can. However, no amount of payroll or debt service relief will make up for all the lost revenue. Budapils has just signed an agreement to sell draft beer to the After Midnight Group, which owns Cowboy Jacks and other Twin Cities bars. It's one of the reasons Justison ordered the new fermenters, but that's not going anywhere now. It's a challenge, he said. Every day is like reinventing the business. We're trying to figure out what the state will allow and what the state won't allow. And that's that is our goal. And that, and that really is... Um, really is sad that i mean a lot of these companies they have such these big plans and this has been just completely derailed by this virus and it just really sucks all i can do is hope that in the near future they can either find a vaccine or they can find something that at least helps curb this 
and avoids um, these breweries shutting down because I mean breweries might be a in a little bit better position just because at least in Minnesota because Minnesota is just one big state of alcoholism <laughs> I mean it really is with how many breweries we have and then a lot of distilleries are starting to pop up everywhere and the fact that when we did our state home ordinance liquor was its own category it wasn't even under groceries or anything like that it was just liquor so I think we just have a giant state of alcoholics so I, th I think breweries will be a little I think they'll I mean they won't have it easy by any means but I think they'll it'll be a little bit better or a little bit easier to um to work through this so but yeah I think um it was a good article. It made me kind of bummed. <laughs> but at the same time, what I liked about it is that it did shed light into what these companies are going through and what they are um, what they are trying to do. And it just um, it kind of gives you a little bit of an insight into the industry and how you would want to break into the industry, I guess. More so from like a... Uh, from a pricing standpoint kind of like what are the barriers of entry and it comes down to you gotta have you gotta be okay with having a very large pile of debt <laughs> that's really what it comes down to so all right let's jump into the main article of the podcast and that is going to be another reason article i know this probably this let's see this is the i believe the third episode in a row that we've done a reason article and don't expect them to leave anytime soon. I'll probably, I'll probably not have one next time, just out of principle because I've done so many of them. But this one I thought was really good. And it really interested me. And it's it's a really well written and thought out article. And I just this was like perfect for a perfect conversation piece for me um, regarding regarding everything that's going on right now. So let's just jump into it. So it's a reason article by. And I believe I've I've talked about another article of this person's. Uh, it's J.D. Tusili. And I don't know what else I've read from him, but I've read a lot. And I think I've done another article of his on the podcast. But it's called The, uh, the Surveillance State Thrives During the Pandemic. Can we take government officials at their word that they'll eventually abandon their new powers? And I, for one, say no. I don't think we can. I don't think we can. Um, I think that they're going to, and I said this a number of episodes ago, I think what they're going to do is they're going to enact a bunch of really bull bullshit legislation and they're going to use that, uh, or they're going to enact a bunch of bullshit legislation under the guise of it's helping us for this virus, but they're also going to have like a clause in there that says that they get to continue doing it after this is all over. Um, I really think that that's what they're going to do. It's kind of like what I said either last episode or the episode before. It's um, this, it's like the stuff that they did after 9-11 with the Patriot Act. I think that's what's going to happen with this. They're going to use this as a way to make it mandatory um, and allow them to like track our cell phones, uh, like maybe drones. It talks about that in this article right here with drones and stuff. I, I, I really do think that that's what's, what's going to happen. So we will see. Oh, just a quick sip of water. No coffee this morning, just water. I'm going to wait. It's uh, Easter Sunday. I don't know if I said that earlier, but this uh, quick Easter Sunday 
podcast that I wanted to um, wanted to throw up. I couldn't wait. I got really excited. I had all these articles that I knew I really wanted to talk about. So um, I didn't want to wait until my normal scheduling. I'll probably still pump out another one, but I just really wanted to get this one out. Uh, so let's just jump into this one. So the beginning of the article, from cell phone tracking to drone eyes in the sky, perused or perused health records and GPS ankle bracelets. An epidemic of surveillance state measures is spreading across the world. It's all done in the name of battling the spread of SARS-2. And they say COVID-19, but again, I'm going to start using SARS-2 because that's really is what, it is, what the name of it is. Battling the spread of SARS-2, of course, since every crisis is used to justify incursions into our liberty, but long after the virus has done its worst and moved on. We're likely to be stuck with these invasions of our privacy unless we push back hard. And I 100% agree with that. And that's kind of what I've been saying for a long time is we need not a revolution or anything by any means because the U.S. population isn't ready to do anything like that. But we need to do something. Back to the article. The rationales for surveillance are easy to understand with within certain limits. Public health authorities battling the pandemic want to know who is spreading the virus, which people which people they may have infected, and the moments of those potentially carrying the bug. Or in movements, yeah, in the movements of those potentially carrying the bug. China, where the SARS-2 outbreak began, leveraged its already deeply intrusive system of social control to force people to install cell phone apps that assign them a code according to allegedly their perceived risk of spreading contagions. That's really creepy. I can't believe that they do that, but then again, it is China. Um, permission to travel and enter public spaces depends on that code even as the software also tracks their whereabouts and shares data on users' phones with the authority. What? Wow, that did, I did not catch that the first time through when I read that. That is so weird. Wow, you have to have a code on your phone that gives you special permission to go to places. Oh my god, that's gross. Oh, I don't like that at all. Oh, I'm glad I don't live in China. <laughs> One, I'd never be able to do this podcast in China. I would have disappeared after probably the first episode. <laughs> All right, back to the article. Democratic South Korea didn't go as far as China, though. But it still tracked people's cell phones and credit card usage. Officials also used surveillance cameras to monitor the movements of those suspected of being infected. And I didn't even think of that. Um, like, when I was talking about last episode or the episode before when I talked about um, the different things that the government can do and maybe something some things you can do to prevent it um, from them figuring out where you are I never thought about credit card usage that they could they could easily I mean if they can get into our cell phone data what's what's stopping them from getting into our credit card data and it makes me consider primarily I mean and this is what sucks right now because no one's accepting cash. But I was going to say, I would love to just start using cash now to avoid them knowing where I'm spending my money with the credit card. But a lot of places aren't accepting cash anymore, which really sucks. 
so that doesn't really help. But um, officials also use surveillance cameras to monitor the movements of those suspected of being infected. Emulating a Chinese tactic, Spanish authorities turned to aerial drones to detect unauthorized gatherings of people. Already a cringeworthy concept for those of us inclined or disinclined to ask permission to meet with friends. Loudspeakers on the drones ordered violators to return home. That is so 1984. Like, I hope that they realize that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's Spain, and obviously they don't have as free of a country as, as we do. But, God, that's, that is very, very 1984, like, George Orwell way of thinking. It's just... I'm actually, now that I think about it, I think that is something that happened in the book 1984 to spy on people was they had drones monitoring the locations of people. Oof. Here in the U.S., government officials joined with tech company joined with tech companies to paw through the location data that most of us share with cell phone apps. The idea is to is to determine if people are staying home as ordered. If not, the information detects where we're clustering. Privacy rules have also been relaxed to allow easier sharing of patients' medical records with government health officials. I don't like that at all either. I'm I'm becoming more and more just a crotchety get off my lawn kind of person where it's like, you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you. Can we just like live our lives? Don't paw through all my data and all my medical records. It's weird. You don't need that information. But they want it. So they're going to get it, which is what they've done. Uh, back to the article. And some agencies are attaching GPS ankle monitors to COVID-19 patients and those suspected of exposure lest they go for a walk in the country or pick up groceries from a curbside. Oh, God, that's weird. I would hate that if I... I feel like if I had an ankle bracelet like that, I'd end up just breaking it <laughs> and getting it off. I would not be able to do that. <laughs> In most cases, big brotherish tactics have been sold as temporary measures intended to battle very real danger from the SARS-2 epidemic or pandemic. The surveillance is intended to enforce social distancing, again, very Orwellian social conditioning, like new speak type crap, and track carriers of the new coronavirus so we can end the crisis, end the health crisis and return to normal. There is no normal anymore, though. And that's what that's what Big Brother really wants, is us for this to be the new normal. But can we take government officials at their word that they'll eventually abandon their new powers? No, you can't. You really can't. Government demands for new high-tech surveillance powers are all too familiar, warns Adam Schwartz, a senior staff senior staff attorney with the Electric Frontier Foundation, EFF. This includes well-meaning This includes well-meaning proposals to use various forms of data about disease transmission among people. Even in the midst of a crisis, the public must carefully evaluate such government demands because surveillance invades privacy, deters free speech, and unfairly burdens vulnerable groups. And, Schwartz adds, new surveillance powers tend to stick around. Yeah, they don't just enact it just for the virus. It always stays around. 
the EFF attorney, Adam Schwartz, isn't alone in his concerns. I think the effects of SARS-2 will be, or uh, COVID-19, will be more drastic than the effects of the terrorist attacks of 9-11, not only with respect to surveillance, but across many aspects of our society, wrote security expert, expert Bruce Schneier. And while many things that would never be acceptable during normal times are reasonable things to do right now, we need to make sure that we ratchet them back once the current pandemic is over. Our ability, or lack thereof, to ratchet them back is the key point here for surveillance powers. That's because, as Schwartz suggests, the government tends to expand their reach in response to crises, but only to surrender part of that new authority as danger recedes. After each major crisis, the size of government, though smaller than during the crisis, remained larger than it would have been had the pre-crisis rate of growth persisted during the interval, interval occupied by the crisis, wrote economic historian Robert Higgs in his 1987 book, Crisis and Leviathan. Tellingly, he, go, he coined the term ratchet effect to describe the phenomenon. Ratcheting back extraordinary surveillance powers becomes even less likely if the crisis drags on, either because of circumstances or because it's convenient for those who like the power it conveys. And I think that's, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I necessarily believe this entirely, but I, it just, that kind of brings even more sense into why we see a lot of these outbreaks happening um, during election cycles. Because those are the easiest times where a lot of legislation is passed and a lot of power gets um, changed into different hands that could possibly create more regulations and more more surveilling and, 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 and stuff like that. It just like, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily believe the that that conspiracy theory where all of these major things have happened during uh, during political cycles and I don't know if there's like a a, um, a causation for that but it does kind of that information right there definitely piggybacks or is not piggybacks but um is a good thing to argue with when you're talking about that about that theory that would definitely be a good talking point that's what I wanted to say that would be a good talking point for your argument with on why a lot of this stuff happens during election cycles. Uh, back to the article. COVID-19 will be here for the next 18 months or more, insists former Obama administration health policy advisor Ezekiel Emanuel. I will, we will not be able to return to normalcy until we find a vaccine or effective medications. I, I don't know if I agree with that. I think we um, we can return to our new normal because <laughs> normalcy that we had before um, that's dead, that's not coming back. This is the new normal. We've the old normal that we were accustomed to has died, and we're picking up the pieces to create a new one. But even if that were not the case, and normalcy could be returned to, I don't think that I don't think that we would need um, a vaccine 
or effective medication. I guess effective medication, but not not a vaccine. I'm, I don't think we need that in order to return to normalcy at, at, by any means. I think we just need to, and I talked about this before, I, th I think we just need to um, quarantine off all the people that are a little on the older side that are more susceptible. We need to quarantine them, them off, and then we need to have the younger people go back to work. That's what I really think needs to happen, honestly. Back to the article. Historian Nicholas Mulder predicts and hopes that many policy changes to meet the pandemic will become permanent. Wait, what? Crises have always granted reformist policymakers powers to bypass legislative gridlocks and entrenched interests. Whoa, I don't know. That's a weird thing to say. He wants these. Okay, let me reread that. Historian Nicholas Mulder predicts and hopes that many policy changes to meet the pandemic will become permanent. In quotes, crises have always granted reformist policy reformist policymakers powers to bypass legislative gridlocks and entrenched interests. Okay, I kind of see where he's coming at from that standpoint, but I I hope he's only got a particular a particular set of things that he would like to see get bypassed through that. That's like a very slippery slope if if you will. That's weird. Okay, you know, I'm not even going to think about it too much. But, um, back to the article. If surveillance powers continue to grow along with an ongoing crisis, you can only assume that the sophistication and intrusiveness of that surveillance will also grow. Along those lines, the Canadian company Dragonfly is touting a drone that can, from a distance, determine fever, which is much different than determining just temperature, cough detection, respiratory rate, heart rate, and blood pressure. The goal is to remotely detect potential SARS-2 cases. And that's another one of those like really intrusive, really intrusive things that is going to cost us a lot of, of liberty. I think it was in one of the Star Wars movies where it's like the death of liberty is the death of liberty will be the sound of applause or something. God, I should look that up because it was a good it was a good statement. It was yeah, it had something to do with like that. The death of liberty will be to the sound of applause or something like that. Um, in the U.S., local local public health authorities already scrape social media for information about foodborne illnesses to target and close suspect eateries. Albert Fox Can and John Vessel Midling of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project say we should expect the same technique to eventually be applied to the pandemic. And I mean, it already has, honestly. It, They've already been doing stuff like that. I can't tell you how many people I've seen, like, saying on social media and on, uh, like, Twitch streams that I listen to. People just saying, yeah, don't talk about anything on social media. Don't say anything about this thing. Don't say you're sick. Don't say you're feeling under the weather. Don't, like, be a hermit. And don't share your personal life. Like, the less you can share about your personal life, the better at, at this time. Because they are coming through social media to find what you're saying and if they figure out that you've got a cough or that you may have it they will find you 
And I don't think that's something you want. The future looks very closely scrutinized. All of our own health. Or all for our own health. Unfortunately, our liberty and privacy will die slow and unpleasant deaths in the process. That is, unless we start to actively oppose efforts to monitor activities. And I think we are getting to that point. Um, I think us as a country... We can only take so much. I don't think we'll ever get to the point where we'll, where we will want a revolution. One, because I think even if we wanted one, I don't think it would ever work out, especially since the military has military-grade weapons that aren't available to the public, which is a um, a Second Amendment violation that a lot of people don't don't think about, and one that I didn't even really think about or really apply it to. I mean, but that's a that's a totally different. Uh, a totally different conversation i'm not going to get down that rabbit hole but um there's just a couple more let's uh let's finish this article and then i'll kind of give my my thoughts on it china the most pervasive surveillance state on the planet has fueled as much innovation among those seeking to evade scrutiny as among those exercising it people learn to install anti-spyware software on their phones or more simply to carry two devices one for mandated apps and ID checks, the other for unapproved uses. And I never realized that, but it's it like I not like some stuff that I saw when I was in China, when I was studying abroad. It now makes sense. I see a lot. I saw a lot of my guides had two phones, and I was always so confused on why they had two phones. I mean, I had two phones just because I had one from the United from one from the U.S. But it wasn't jailbroken, so I couldn't just put a SIM card in it. And then I had a burner phone that I had a SIM card in that I could go from country to country and get, uh, like, seven-day uh, SIM cards for data and stuff. But um, I always was, like, confused. Why are these, like, Chinese locals having two phones? Well, that's why. One's, a, one's for Big Brother to spy on them, and the other one is a burner phone for them to use for anything that they want. So uh, back to the article. If cell phones really do become tracking devices, we might even leave them at home when out and about and in need of privacy. The withdrawal would be tough at first, but we can console ourselves with the knowledge that public health authorities would be keenly aware of the location of our coffee tables and not of us. This paragraph is really cheeky and I like it. Um, we would even back away from posting every detail of our lives, including our health on social media. That would be a nice breath of fresh air. As for drones, if only there was some technology appropriate for knocking flying objects out of the air and available in a variety of shot sizes. I like this because he 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 uh, hyperlinks some technology in that sentence. He he hyperlinks it to the Wikipedia page for shotgun shells, and I just thought that was really funny. Uh, it would be best if government officials learned to back off and abandon truly temporary measures after the precipitating crisis disappeared, but that's probably a lesson that they'll have to be taught rather forcefully. And that's very true, I think. Um, with this, they're going to, it's the old adage, if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile. And I think that's really what's going to happen with this. I think going forward, we've got a big issue with the government wanting to take more rights away, more liberty, and more freedom from us. And the only way 
for us to really get them to back off is for us to just finally say, you know, enough is enough. We're not going to stand for it. And I don't know what, in what form that's going to take, whether that's us like just in mass shutting off our phones or like riots or like uh, floods onto the Capitol and protests. I don't know what it is, but it's, this isn't good. These, um, these politicians are going to use every excuse they can to enact these, these really bad policies that are going to be permanent, that allow them to track us. And it's just gross, and we need to figure out a way that we can fight back. I don't know how, um, but it needs to be resisted. We can't just take this lying down. We really can't. I, um, I really enjoyed this article. I, um, I'm really, really liking the journalism from the Reason or uh, from Reason.com. I like a lot of what they talk about. It becoming uh, it seems like I'm becoming more and more libertarian as the uh, the days and weeks go by, especially right now. And they have a lot of stuff. It I don't know. Maybe they're surveilling me. Maybe the, maybe Reason.com is. Um, talking out of both sides of the mouth and they're, they're uh, tracking what I'm thinking because it seems like every day I get a new e email newsletter from them and I'm like, you know what, I was thinking about something like that. I, like, now they got an article talking about what I was thinking about and what I was like talking through in my head. That's crazy. Like this is the second time that I've got, I think it's been back to back days where I get a newsletter or, or a newsletter from them with a bunch of articles. And like the top story from that newsletter is something that I've been like thinking about. So that's kind of weird. All right. That ran a little bit short, but that's okay. Let's jump into the last article, uh, the Wall Street Journal article. And it is by Joe Craven McGinty. And it's why the flu doesn't tank the economy. And the reason I put this article in is mainly because when this whole uh, COVID-19 SARS-2 broke out, I was very adamant about comparing it to the flu. And I like until reading this article, I still kind of felt like this was still in the aura of a flu because, I mean, it is kind of like that kind of strain. Um, but... After reading this article, it kind of does solidify more that it's that it's definitely not the flu. It's definitely not on any scope of being able to compare them, being to compare the compare the two. And this article very well, or does a very good job of pointing out the um, the uh, pitfalls in that argument of saying like, oh, this is just the flu. We shouldn't be taking the economy. We shouldn't be shutting down businesses. When in reality, yeah, I mean. It might be, like, obviously we shouldn't shut everything down. There's got to be a better way, but you can't, you, you can't use the argument that it's like the flu to justify opening everything back up is what I'm trying to say. All right, so let's jump into it. As, uh, as one state after another issued economy-wrecking stay-at-home orders to counter the spread of the new coronavirus, skeptics asked a confounding question. Millions of Americans get the flu each year, and tens of thousands die from it. Why doesn't the flu cause a shutdown? 
according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, up to 55 million Americans get the flu this season, and as many as 63,000 die. In comparison to more than 490,000 have been diagnosed with SARS-2, according to John Hopkins University, and more than 18,000 have died. But those numbers don't tell the whole story. For starters, the flu tallies are estimates of total flu burden, while the SARS-2 figures are confirmed cases only. And because I had to read that a couple times to really understand what that meant. Flu burden is like the overarching the whole thing. So they, what the numbers that we're getting, the 55 million uh, infected and then the 63,000 dying from the flu, that's all based on the burden that is put on the country as a whole after the fact. So they figure out those numbers after the season is over. Whereas with this, we don't know what the whole burden is going to be because we're not over it yet. So that's what that means. Um, uh, eventually, the CDC will estimate the total SARS-2 burden, but for now, the numbers are not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. And that's something that like I had not thought about or taken into account when I thought about this being like the flu. So that's one thing that I'm like, oh, wow, I'm okay, so I'm wrong on that. This article just kind of showed me, this kind of humbled me, I guess, in a way, because it basically said, oh, okay, well, Sam, your your thoughts uh, about comparing the two are wrong here, 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 and here. It's like all over the place. You're just wrong. <laughs> so I think that's kind of why I like this article is it kind of just, it showed the flaws in, in a way of thinking that I had. Um, and I do like that. Back to the article. We always know confirmed, we always know confirmed cases are an underestimate, said Lynette Bramer, who leads the CDC's domestic influenza surveillance influenza surveillance team in addition SARS-2 differs from the flu in how quickly it spreads the length and severity of the illness and the in the unusual demands of contagion with no cure places on medical staff and facilities instead of gentle waves of cases cascading across the country over the span of six months like the flu does a tidal wave of SARS-2 cases has swept over a handful of cities in half the time. The concentration of quickly amassing serious infections overwhelmed the affected areas, and the fear is that without social distancing, for, for now the only effective intervention, other places will have a similar experience. A snapshot of the 2009 H1N1 influenza pandemic shows the difference in the spread of transmission or the speed, the speed of transmission between the raging flu and the new coronavirus. Comparing only laboratory-confirmed cases in the first 102 days of the H1N1 flu pandemic, the CDC reported over a little over 43,677 uh, 43, illnesses and 302 deaths. In 22 fewer days, SARS-2 infected 11 times as many people and killed 60 times as many. The flu season is spread out, said William Schaffner, an infectious disease specialist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. This is being jammed up in a short time frame. Yeah, and that's another thing that I didn't really think about. It's that when you talk about the numbers for the flu, you're talking about numbers that are 
over the course of many, many months. Like six to eight months is usually when the whole flu season kind of takes hold. Six months for Minnesota, it might drag a little bit more when you get to different states, but like it's really spread out over time. Whereas with the with with uh, COVID, SARS two, like that's really it's only our first confirmed case was in January, so we're coming up on only three months, and we've already had this much of a crazy reaction. So that's another thing that I didn't really consider when I was comparing the two and, and thinking about the two. And the flu season is spread out. Oh, no, I already read that. Uh, SARS-2 outbreaks have also become or have also been highly localized. You've got a hotspot pattern instead of an even pattern, says Emily Martin, an epidemiologist at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Health. All the pressure is concentrated in small areas. New York, the state that has been hardest hit, surpassed 172,000 confirmed cases on Friday, according to the John Hopkins. According to John Hopkins, account, accounting for about 35% of U.S. illnesses and 43% of deaths. That's a lot. That is a lot. With too few beds and not enough staff to respond to the influx, the state resorted to converting hotels, a convention center, and a tennis arena into temporary hospitals and called on retired doctors and nurses to return to work. This kind of onslaught doesn't happen with the flu. Oh, that is like just insane. And um, they talk about, the other thing that they talk about is that it's, it happening so fast and that like everyone was keep uh, kept talking about like the burden on the healthcare system and, and things like that and the reason they they talk about that is about like minnesota for example doesn't see that the thing that they do see um or someplace that they do see is like these little hot spots like in wisconsin like wisconsin they don't have big medical facilities so if all of a sudden like 10 patients get it okay that's fine they've got those extra beds to handle like other than the people that they're already dealing with but then all of a sudden it just doubles and doubles and doubles and then all of a sudden you've got 350 people in there and you have no more beds for anybody else and I think that's where like this overflow kind of happens and that just doesn't happen with the flu they've got a they've got a graph on this article and I'll uh, go through it the um and this is compared between the flu and SARS-2. So the median hospital stay for the seasonal flu is 3.6 days. The median hospital stay for SARS-2 is 12 days. So almost four times as much. The hospitalization rate for the flu is 1.3%, whereas the hospitalization rate for SARS-2 is 10.6%, almost 10 times as much. And then the fatality rate for the flu is 0.1% for the flu. And the fatality rate for SARS-2 is 3.6%. I'm not sure where they get 3.6 because I'm pretty sure it's a little lower than that. That might be uh, worldwide, but oh, uh, they got it from the CDC New England Journal of Medicine. I don't know how recent it was, but it seems kind of high, 3.6%. I could have sworn it was lower, but anyway, that's probably overall of all the cases worldwide um 
So, oh, let's jump back into the article. Let's see. Yeah. Okay, so okay, the article talked a little bit about the, the graph that I just said, so I'm just going to skip all that. Here we go. Having a hospital full of highly contagious patients diminishes stores of equipment intended to protect staff who are also at risk of infection. The University of Michigan Medical Center now requires everyone to wear a mask and if they are caring for COVID-19, SARS-2 patients, a gown, uh, a gown and eye protection. During flu season, the center uses droplet protection only in some rooms. Most people have most people have some immunity to the flu, either from vaccines or previous exposure, and nearly all healthcare workers are protected by the flu shot. It's not unusual to have compliance rates of compliance rates above 95%. Vanderbilt's Dr. Schaefner said referring to vaccinations of hospital employees. That's everybody. Doctors, nurses, dietitians, people who clean at night, everybody. Currently, there is no vaccine or specific treatment for COVID-19. But there is one quality that might make COVID-19 less problematic than the flu. It's not changing. Uh, it's not changing and mutating at the rate the flu can do. And I think that's why we have the seasonal flu every single year is that it's mutating. Like the, the vaccine that we have, like it helps, but that the flu is constantly changing every single year. It's like viruses do that. They they figure out like the, the little particles that may not get you sick, they stay in you and they develop, they figure out a way to get you sick again and then they transmit it. And so I think that's how the, the flu is a little worse than this, whereas it the flu will constantly mutate and it, it's constantly changing and that's what's that's why it's constantly getting people sick whereas with uh, COVID-19 with SARS-2 it's not changing which means that as soon as we find a cure um, it most likely will be like uh, polio where like it dies it just straight up dies and it won't come back or at least if it does come back we'll have something that will stop it right in its tracks uh, Oh, so, and that was said by Allison Weinman, an infectious disease physician at Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. That can make it easier for pharmaceutical companies to develop an effective vaccine and render COVID-19 SARS-2 no more remarkable than the seasonal flu. Alright, so that's the end of the article. And yeah, it just really puts the um, that argument of the flu versus SARS-2 into perspective and um, kind of gives me a better understanding of the differences because I mean I'm not a doctor I never did any research regarding the flu so it's um when I saw the numbers about the uh at the beginning at least in uh early February I was seeing all the all the numbers coming out and I mean at that point it wasn't really spreading or at least we didn't have enough boots on the ground to really get uh get more information about SARS-2 so I was just look like when I'm a very numbers oriented person and when I looked at them it's like why are we why are we freaking out over this I mean yeah we don't have a cure and that's bad but I mean when this first started it was it was it had really low numbers in the US so I'm like we got like thousands and thousands of people dying of the flu why why are we not all up in arms about that but we're up in arms about this and 
I think part of that is just it, um, it's back then when I was thinking that we just didn't have all the information. And again, when you're dealing with the flu, when you're looking at these numbers, those numbers have already been tallied for the year. I probably, if I would have seen the tally of what the flu had done for the first month of its, of its time, the first month of its flu season time, it probably would have been more comparable to what's been going on with, uh, with COVID-19, with SARS-2. So, um, it's just kind of like keeping your mind open and, and thinking about thinking these things through rather than just throwing them out to the ether and think, like assuming that they're fact. Uh, but yeah, so I think I'll uh, end that there. A lot of good, uh, a lot of good topics. I feel like that was, uh, it was good. I liked it. <laughs> well, of course I liked it. I picked them, but um, I hope you guys all enjoyed them. I'm trying to branch out a little bit. I'm, I feel like in the last couple episodes, I've kind of maybe narrowed in a little too much on some political stuff and some some stuff about COVID. So maybe this next, I think I said this last time, but maybe this next one I'll be a little more jovial and do some other fun stuff. Um, I did like when I came up with this uh, when I came up with this podcast, my thought process wasn't to have it be around coronavirus, of course, uh, or around like political stuff. It really was just for us to like for me to be talking through topics and ideas and like reshaping them and thinking about them from all angles and and coming at it and, and feeling a little more enlightened after thinking about different scenarios and different um, ways of thinking about a certain topic was really why I why I uh, started this podcast so I think maybe next next episode I should kind of move back to that or at least have another article like that uh, like I had um, like I had last week, like I had in the last episode where we were talking about the media or uh, the one before that with the, with the society. So, but yeah, um, I think we, uh, yeah, I think we'll end it here. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, again, my name is Sam and this is the Shaped Ideas Podcast. If you uh, want to reach out to me on social media, uh, we've got pretty much all of them. And uh, they are, let's see, Twitter is uh, at Shaped Ideas. Instagram is Shaped Ideas Podcast, along with Facebook. Um, I don't have a YouTube yet, but I think I will start putting those up on YouTube. And then you can find this podcast uh, pretty much anywhere podcasts are. You can find it um, You find it on Spotify. You can find it on, let's see, TuneIn Radio. You can find it on the Anchor website, the Anchor app, Google Podcasts. And then a couple of other really smaller ones like Breaker, uh, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public. But yeah, the big ones would be, oh, it's on Stitcher as well. So you've got Stitcher. The big ones are Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, so yeah, uh, feel free to reach out to me at any of those social medias that I already pointed out. I would love to get your guys' feedback on this stuff. Um, and maybe have some new, some new talking points, um, based on your feedback. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all next time.